Welcome back to the November episode of the Gate 15 interview. As we wrap up November, I'm very happy to be joined by Ren Isaac's Kim Milford today as we discuss Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience Month. And I'm very proud that I got that out of my mouth successfully. And higher education, which is really going to be focusing on. So I have the privilege to have worked closely with Kim and her team over the last several years. And you'll hear about some of that as we go along today. You can see some more of that background in the blog post that will be accompanying this podcast recording. So we're just going to jump right into it because when Kim and I start talking, we tend to get off track and talk about a lot of things. We're going to try our best to stay focused and manage our time respectfully. So hi, Kim. Thanks for making time to talk with me today. You want to take a moment to introduce yourself and Ren Isaac and what that's all about? Sure thing, Andy. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and, and I'm sure we'll get very conversational here. So this is going to be fun. Yeah. My name is, as, as Andy said, I'm Kim Milford with the Ren Isaac. That stands for Research and Education Networking Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So there are many ISACs around the country. We all share information and share and analyze information, I should say, around cybersecurity incidents. So uh, sometimes privacy people get a little nervous about what we're sharing. What you sharing? You know, we're not sharing confidential data. Like maybe a, a general IP address would be shared, but even that would just be mainly mainly it's the bad guys, right? It's the indicators of compromise that we're sharing. So. Um, it would be, oh, we see this coming from this IP address, and um, but it's it's not going to have any personal information about anyone. We, you know, that 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 it really is about sharing, so that we can defend against these threats. Um, and we share in a, a couple different ways. We share uh, in automated fashion, um, where we are handing around these indicators, of compromise, and then then people who take who get those can take them and put them into their protections, maybe a firewall, maybe an intrusion detection or prevention system um, so that they can block traffic from hitting them. So that's one important way that we share. Uh, and then probably the other biggest way we share, uh, and I have tons of examples of this and could talk all night about it. So I won't do that, I promise you all. Um, I'm going to hold you back. <laughs> the other most important way we share is, is person to person. Um, and we, and once again, you're going to see we do a lot of things in two days, two ways. We do that in two ways. We do hub to spoke sharing where we find things, we we read, we analyze everything. For instance, we analyze everything we get from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, and things we get from other countries' governmental or, organizations, like in um, uh, Great Britain or in. Uh, Australia. So we read those, we analyze them, we say, oh, this is this is pertinent to our members. It's timely. We're going to go ahead and push it out to them. So we don't write everything we, we push out, but we push out quite a bit that other folks have drafted. And then we also write things of, of topical interest. So, um, so we do that hub to spoke, but then we also have this really vibrant and wonderful community of people who share with each other. So we provide the facilitation and then those spokes are all interconnected and they talk to each other. So, you know, someone might ask, hey, do you guys use this, this tool? Do you use, um, uh, you know, multi-factor authentication? And then everyone will chime in and say what they use and how they use it. And there might be multiple questions on it. So, so that's a really rich environment to, uh, to participate in. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. That was a whole lot about some of the things we're going to get into in a little bit more depth here. I think I'm just a little bit and important to know that you just shared, Kim. Ren ISAC, you know, we think about the ISAC, we're talking about, you know, National Critical Infrastructure Month here in the U.S., but your membership includes folks in across North America, right, in, in Australia, in Europe. I mean, you guys are 
what, 600 and over 650 members now, I think, right? That's correct. Yes, yeah, so over 650 members in uh, it, primarily in the five I countries. So US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and in the UK. Um, there, we have a couple of exceptions uh, and, and we're seeing we're seeing more people want to share, which makes me really excited. I, you know, that's that's our mission, and I, I feel it's very important that, that that that's why I'm in it. You know, I'm not in it to learn confidential information from the FBI or anything like that. Um, I'm here to help people, and I help people by sharing. So, so looking for new ways we can share globally is really fun. And actually, the national uh, the National Council of ISACs has been having those discussions. So we're how do we how do we take our successes and write this even larger to help more people? Awesome, yeah. So Kim, giving us giving us a great preview of a lot of things we're going to dive into here in the next little bit. So want to start moving in that direction and build off what you've already shared. Kim, Kim, thanks so much for being here today and for sharing what you already have. So we're going to discuss higher education critical infrastructure. We're going to talk about the threat landscape you're looking at because it's it's wide and diverse and really interesting. Um, from, from a security standpoint. We'll talk about some of that security coordination you already touched on with the National Council of ISACs and your member communities and government partners. We might touch on the pandemic a little bit and some other emerging issues. And then frankly, anything else that Kim Milford wants to talk about. So let's get started with critical infrastructure, right? So I'm gonna, in my long-winded style, I'm gonna quote here a little bit. We've been discussing, I'll try this once again, critical infrastructure, security and resilience month. I absolutely hate that term. In our, all of our Gay 15 podcasts this month with a focus on the ISTAC community. And so really appreciate being able to talk with you today. At the end of October announcing this month's focus, the president announced that critical infrastructure provides a foundation for our national security and prosperity. During Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience Month, we renew our commitment to protecting and securing our nation's essential systems. These vital functions and services are empowered, excuse me, are powered by a broad ecosystem of critical infrastructure assets, systems, networks, and workers and underpin our American way of life. And I think that's very true every year the president announces you know, the, the, the month and provides some context to it. So Kim, I'm a big fan of yours and of Ren Isaacs and all the great work your team does. Besides being a fan, I'm an invested stakeholder with one son in college and one that's gonna be faster than I would like. But when we think about critical infrastructure, I think a lot of people mentally default to things like energy and water and other critical lifelines and vital services. So can you explain a little bit about how higher education fits into that you know, broad network of critical infrastructure? What does it mean when we talk about higher education as critical infrastructure? Yeah, a lot of people don't think, and I, I know even my discussions with, with folks in the, uh, the federal government, they don't always think of us as critical infrastructure um, until, until something happens. So <laughs> then we all see it, right? So think about um, response to a physical event like a hurricane. Uh, so in that case, you can't keep the, the universities and colleges out of the picture and have a, 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 a comprehensive approach, right? The, because they, they house staff, they um, often have, many of us have our own electricity that we generate. Um, we have food, we employ people, we have, um, we have health facilities, we have gathering facilities. So we are like many, many urbans, urban areas, many municipalities. That's what I was, I was going for there. Um, we, we have the same concerns as a small city would um, for the most part. You know, students kind of change the concerns a little bit, right? Uh, because they're, they're completely dependent on us, especially if they're a residential student. 
and uh, and all their their what do we do now? All that information, their administration comes directly from the university, right? Because if they're in a classroom, we need to be able to reach out to them and tell them what our expectations are for them. And it could be something very urgent, or it could be something like, okay, you know, like the pandemic. We we're like, okay, here's what you need. Here are the steps you need to take to protect yourself. So, so in that way, we are critical in how we respond to emergency events. We are critical. And, and like a small municipality, we're, we're not, our, and we're a funny sector, right? We're a little off, truthfully. We're special snowflakes, yay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but we, we truly are. If you think about energy, right? Or electricity, they, they provide a, a one service, you know, a, a narrow service. So we provide this broad service. If you want to think narrowly, we provide education. And, you know, but that doesn't take into, you know, the, the that doesn't take into account the, this complex um, microcosm that we call the campus. So, so we have to look broadly. We do look broadly. Um, any sort of legislation for cybersecurity or privacy uh, that is enacted by the U.S. government, we almost always have to be compliant with it. So we have the HIPAA, health, health information, FERPA is student information, um, Gramm-Leach-Bliley is uh, financial. We, there's a few other financial ones too. There's some financial aid specific one. So anytime something comes up, we have to, we have to comply with it. So it's not like we can go, oh, well, that, that sort of privacy doesn't, you know, we have employee privacy just like any other employer. So we can't go, oh, that, yeah, that one's not really us. We're just, we're, we're the whole gamut. Yeah, I love that. I love that you start with hurricanes. And we'll, we'll come back to that point here in just a moment. But you're absolutely right. You're, I mean, universities and campuses are really, you know, small cities or small urbans, as you've renamed them today, right? And, 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 and <laughs> That's going to stick. <laughs> but it's such a good point. You think about how unprepared the general population is for most you know, serious incidents. Now you add in the fact that you've got far more young adults that are away from home for the first time. And you take out all that adult supervision. And it's a very complicated situation. We talked about this. I had a chance to work with your team uh, down in North Carolina a few years ago, and we, it was right after a hurricane incident. And this is the exact topic that, we, that came up, right? It was trying to inform and manage the anxieties of all these young you know, students and just doing that successfully. And it's not easy. And so there's a lot of things to So that actually points to where I wanted to go. So thank you very much for that nice lead. And we talk about critical infrastructure, um, you know, in campuses around the country. I mean, you're, you're, there's a whole lot going on there for you guys, right? There's lots and lots of people, a lot of online activity, a lot of connected devices. It's amazing research and other work going on. So higher ed exposed to the full all hazards threat environment. You talked about hurricanes and natural hazards, but you talked about physical security incidents. So just to be clear, does RENISAC focus explicitly on cyber threats or are you looking more broadly than that? We have, have traditionally we focused on cyber threats and that, that's our DNA, that's where we started in that area. So we'll always have a special um, expertise and you know, place in our hearts for that. Um, but then a few years ago, I started seeing, and, and, and I think it was in one of our conversations, Andy, that we started kind of, kind of pitching this around and seeing that threats are no longer one type of threat or another. They're, they're coming from a bunch of different sources and they overlap and interweave. So it might, what might start as a physical threat, such as a hurricane, but then that has digital 
electronic impact. So it has it has impact broader than just the physical. And we saw this um, during several of the hurricanes in recent years, where um, their 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 student uh, systems were taken out of service. So they didn't have coursework. They didn't have any way to communicate with their students. They didn't have student records, so they couldn't even see who was supposed to be in the class, whatever in class was at the time. So we started seeing this crazy overlap. And uh, in today's world, we cannot look at it as the type of threat that it originates from and decide who's going to do what. So we really need to have this blended threat perspective. And let me give another example on flipping it around on cybersecurity. Um, so uh, uh, there's there's many technical events that now impact the real world. For instance, all of our lock systems, they're all systems right now. You know, they're ICS, SCADA types of systems. So if you can freeze that machine out, nobody can get into the doors. And I actually caused a denial of service attack once. It was accidental. <laughs> it was at a hospital where I worked at the university. Um, and we had this IP address that was misbehaving and we were sure it had been owned. It had been owned. And they weren't, we, we were under the impression that no systems, no oper operation systems were on that part of the network. And so it was just a misconfiguring where they had an IP address they weren't supposed to have. And so we, we shut that puppy down. It was the door system for the um, emergency room. I love that. <laughs> it, it's it's a terrible story, um, but it's so it's so telling about what we're talking about here, right? So, so we um, and it took them a long time to diagnose it. So they start they went to their network operations center and started working their way down. Oh, this happened. Oh, this happened. And then they were they were it was all dead end. So finally, about ten p.m. that night, and, and in the meantime, we'd sent them an email saying. This IP address was misbehaving and it was a list of other IP addresses. So we blocked it and they got that every day and they probably ignored it because they were like, yeah, they always do a good job. We don't have to worry about it. So they ignored that email. So then about 10 p.m., they were frustrated because this has been since like 2 p.m. They'd been propping emergency room doors open all afternoon. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the poor gentleman, the, the CISO there, he looked through that list and realized what it was. And, uh, and so I, I'm getting the flaming texts on my phone, you know, and he was not a happy camper. And I, you know, I, I could be self-righteous and say, well, you didn't follow a procedure, but the truth is it was a bad, it was a bad problem for a lot of us. So we were able to clean up procedures a little bit. And, and I asked someone who was in the emergency room that day, uh, I said, oh, what happened? And, and she said, we just put chairs in the doors. Yeah. <laughs> like, Oh man, how annoying that must have been. <laughs> annoying and, and, and really maybe with a, with a you know, medical facility that could really become an issue, right? Because that could be blocking, obstructing traffic and things like that. So I mean, I, I love that story. I love talking I love talking with you, Kim. I'm saying you know, to you and to anybody listening right now, because Kim's like the ultimate echo chamber because she talks, it reinforces everything that I believe in and like advocating for. And I hear Kim say it, I'm like, yeah, you know, champion stories, right? And, and, that, and that's the reality that like people aren't necessarily thinking about that cyber physical nexus and beyond just some, that great illustration. We talk about the hurricanes and the severe weather and we talk about you know, cyber systems going down having physical consequences in an emergency situation. Like that, that is reality of an environment. So a lot of us want to think about, you know, hey, I'm, I'm this person, I'm this discipline, I'm the, I'm the network guy, I'm the emergency preparedness guy. I'm, I'm the facilities lady, 
And we think about those, but, but in reality, we all have to work together. And I think you've been such a leader in that you know, with blended threats in the workshop. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. I think there's so much to talk about, but that's a great story. The reality of our inter interconnected environment. I, I love it. And it's, it's reality in higher ed and it's reality everywhere, cross curricular infrastructure and in all of our places of work and operation. So that, that was awesome. So we'll have to, We'll have to retell that story many times in the, in the weeks ahead here, <laughs> but um, why don't we start with Cyrix? I know that is sort of the the heart of, of Ren Isaac and a lot of what you do. So when we spoke for a written interview in 2018, and I'll include the link to that in, in the, the blog post accompanying this podcast, I asked you, can you share some of the more common types of incidents members ask Ren Isaac's help with? And are there common cybersecurity issues that you've been able to observe among members? So here we are two and a half years later, what are you all seeing at Rena Isaac? What are some of the things that members are asking you about? What are some of the concerns that you're seeing across your membership? Uh, you know, it changes a lot, and yet it's often fairly the same. So it's it's a great question, uh, and there's so many different ways I can go with this. So I'll go one way, and then we might tool back and cover some other stuff. Um, one of the things that we see frequently. Is, is about what, what am I implementing? Is it the right thing to implement? And am I implementing it correctly? So how, you know, sort of instructional guidance from each other where they, uh, they're really looking to make sure they can protect their environment as well as they can. So it's kind of general, that's more of a general, not threat specific one. Um, a couple of years ago, we were all, and we still are, but it, it's been, I don't want to say this because I don't want to jinx us, but um, it's been a fairly quiet year for higher ed when it comes to credential thefts, credential breaches. Um, it's not completely quiet. We've, we're still way over a million that have been breached. But, that's um, a quiet year, right? That, that's, that's a, a quiet, quiet year. year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so a couple of years ago, we started seeing that. And, um, and it became clear that multi-factor authentic authentication was the only road that, that was going to protect us. Or I shouldn't say only. I, I should know better than that. I'm a lawyer. Never say only. <laughs> Never say always. Um, so it was the best road to take us. And it seemed like it was sort of, uh, it was hard to exploit still. And it still is today. Um, it's not going to be forever. And it's not impossible to exploit. But it was hard to exploit. So so people moved quickly, higher ed moved quickly to a multi-factor authentication scheme, usually using um, something on your phone, you know, like Duo that you put your, your, the code in or you accept it and move forward. So uh, it's, uh, fortunately, multi-factor authentication has improved a lot and simplified a lot that we can do it on our phones with one click. And I can even show my mom how to do it now, which I love. So, uh, so you know, so that kind of came together. The technology improved and we saw this, this increasing need. So lots of discussions about that. And I would say within a year to 18 months, it was, it was standard across higher ed. Now, maybe not every single user, like maybe students didn't, still didn't have access um, or maybe just students working in certain areas did. Um, so, you know, universities always, we do everything by risk risk assessment, right? Um, this is the appropriate way to do it. You see, so you, you, you look at your risks and you say, what of our data is the most critical? What do we need to protect the most? Okay, we're gonna start with that. So we start with multi-factor authentication with the critical, highly sensitive information. And then maybe we don't ever have it for you know public websites or something like that. But, um, but so that's kind of how we, we process things. 
So not every university has it across the board for everything, but everyone at least has, most institutions now have at least some implementation of multi-factor authentication. So those sorts of discussions are very real and meaningful for our, our uh, members. Um, and, and that's one that, that we keep seeing coming back. And frankly, they're the ones I, so our uh, mailing list is, is extremely active. Um, sometimes there have been days where we've gotten over 250 messages in one day uh, on one mailing list. So, so those are the ones I always read because I always want to learn more about how to protect ourselves, right? Uh, so I'll be like, oh, what did they say about how they did, how they implemented that, or how they how they analyze that? Um, so that's that's one of the 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 constantly ever fresh topics in among our our schools. Well, I love the way you talked about that in the sense of, you know, really understanding risks, prioritizing things and making decisions based on, you know, concern level and, and, and resources and figuring out what, what's really logical, what's necessary, what makes sense for our institution. And not everybody's going to look exactly the same, but having those conversations with peers, you know, through the ISAC is just such an awesome way to bounce those ideas, understand what others are doing, you know, learn from one another. You get that light bulb, like, oh, we've never had this conversation. Maybe we should be. There's so much goodness in that. So I mean, I, I love that you're having those kind of conversations. And again, you talk about 250 messages on, on one topic in a given day. I mean, it's just awesome. That power of community is just absolutely awesome. Yeah, I love to see how they can help each other. And they 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 share scripts. They um they they say, hey, it's did anyone see this IP address causing causing harm in during these hours? And they'll get you know on on. They, they might just get six responses, but that's still pretty powerful to know that six other people are seeing it too, or six other people maybe in a different time zone. It, it gives you valuable intel about how to defend against it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's what a lot of folks that aren't involved in an actively sharing ISAC don't fully understand is that as great as Kim Milford is, as great as your staff is, and as smart as everybody you know working on this is, the real power of the ISAC isn't the staff supporting it, but it's really that community and being able to find out, you know, what what's happening in Hawaii is also what's happening in Idaho is also what's happening in Vermont. Having all those smart peers sharing that information and the ISAC certainly, you know, analyzing it and putting it together in context, but but just that pure community and all that active sharing is just so powerful, right? It makes that you know maybe one analyst or two analysts that an institution might have have a network of you know 500 others, and it just brings so much more power to bear for that organization. So and that's. Nice lead in, nice segue, Andy. You. Um, you know, we so we started, uh, Andy and I started Gate 15 and, and the Ren Isaac started um, these blended threat workshops where we go out to campuses and we provide a day of workshop to think through a scenario that has both physical and cyber impacts there. there. And uh, this is, we're, we're just playing, we're in the planning stages of our third year. Um, it'll be virtual because of. The life circumstances today, which we'll get more into that later, I know. Um, but these really give us a chance to bring people together in a, in a very unique way, in a very unique and focused way. And Andy, you'd mentioned this earlier about not just cybersecurity people, not just emergency management people, not just administration, but bring people across an organization together and with a community. So maybe people from, maybe someone from K-12s uh, decides to come to it, or maybe local sheriff comes to it or someone from libraries comes to it you know so it's 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 intended for the broader campus community and i'm i'm doing an air quotes with campus there 
uh, that y'all can't see, but it, it does exist. So, you know, that was intentional. We, we are trying to bring them together. And this year will be, uh, when we kick off this year's series, they will be, uh, we'll be bringing people together virtual and it'll be both challenging, but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's an opportunity to even help more people. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really excited about these. And anybody that's been, that, that reads our blog posts and listen to these podcasts has probably heard this a few times, but I'll just, just say for, for general awareness, so really the, you know, the idea of the blended threats is a, is a term you know, that came from a conversation we started around the WannaCry outbreak back in 2017. And the way we define it, and I'll, I'll share this link in the podcast notes as well, but we define a blended threat as a natural, accidental, or purposeful physical or virtual danger that has potential for crossover impacts to harm life information, operations, environment, and property. And that's really an adaptation of the DHS risk lexicon, which is now about that 10 years old, and their definition of a threat. But we tried to really you know, bring in that idea that it's these crossover events and effects are so important to understand. And that's where it goes beyond our, you know, our silo of comfort in our organization really brings in all those other players because they might not be thinking about anything like this, but they might have a role to play that I have no idea about. And until we have that conversation, we really can't figure that out together. So you talked about the workshops and we'll talk about, you know, there's so many things you're involved with, right? There are physical threat concerns, severe weather concerns, health concerns, as we know very well, you know, this year that you're dealing with as Ren ISAC. And so despite the pandemic, like you said, we're now going to our third year of, of workshops is super exciting. I think we've planned something that's really you know, exciting for the community this year. And I'll share again, some of the previous year's reports that are available on the Ren ISAC website. I encourage you to check it out. If you haven't seen the website, go to Ren ISAC and, take a look, but there's some previous year's reports sitting right there. And so for this year, and really in general, can you talk about the workshops, but can you, can you explain why you've wanted to do them and how the community has responded to this idea of, you know, blended threats and bring this, this you know, various part of the population together to have these discussions? You know, what, what, what excited you about it and how has the community responded, you know, these last few years? So, so what excited me is some of the stuff we've already talked about, Andy. Um, sort of that, oh, we need to look at the, the comprehensive threat landscape, not, not just one piece of it. And, we, and that means we need to bring more people in. Those of you who know me, probably Andy knows this and he'll probably roll his eyes, but you guys can't see that. I, I have always said, everyone has a role in security and security is everyone's responsibility. And, and I truly believe that. And, and I think that we're only as good as as we can help other people learn more to do, more how to protect themselves, more how to defend themselves if it's an active incident. So, you know, education is key. Maybe that means I'm in the right field, right? If I'm in the education field, that uh, I, I, I believe that, you know, to the, to the core of my being, that we need to share that responsibility out. And, and I'm gonna go back to my mom. I love talking about my mom in these things. My mom is a savvy 81 year old. Um, and she comes to me for security advice and for technology advice. So, you know, we have good chats, but uh, if she doesn't know how to defend her email or her, her uh, iPad, it's scary, right? That, that she can make bad decisions and she still can make bad decisions. And people are constantly gonna try to get her, find her weaknesses, right? Truthfully, the social weaknesses are always the biggest problem. And, uh, I can talk a little bit about that. We we actually run a C-cert for higher ed. So we see what the, the, the threats are that I'll talk about a little bit too. But the biggest threat is almost always the human factor because 
it's just so hard to know all this stuff. It's hard, so hard to stay on top of it. And people get nervous and scared, so they make bad decisions. Um, so anything we can do to increase that knowledge and share that responsibility out, even if it's like, what are the top three things you should do every day to keep your computer in good hygiene? Uh, you know, things like that. I tell my mom that she has to take all of her computers to a computer shop and have them um, maintained just like her car. And I say, just do it once a year, you know, so not quite as, as frequently as your car. Not every 3,000 uh, miles, but. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I just kind of got her used to that. And so now she knows she can't, she knows she won't, she can't talk to me about support unless she's done that. <laughs> so I blackmail her. Into that's fair. That. Yeah. You got to motivate her. Right. So, but that, that, that's so true. Right. I mean, there's, there's just, it always comes down to those fundamentals and there's, you know, every time we read a data breach report, right. It's always written as that, you know, sophisticated cyber attack, but I'm not going to say it almost always isn't something that's very sophisticated, but so often it's not, right? So often it's something much simpler. You know, something wasn't up to date. We hit the wrong thing. We put our credentials in the wrong way. Password reuse issues. So many just sort of blocking and tackling type things that, that get us. And, you know, for those that aren't as immersed in this environment as you might be, you know, that it's so easy to make, make that trip up, you know, in so, in so many different ways. So it's great. You're encouraging your mom. I know, you know, others as well. You know, my, my colleague, Jennifer Lynn Walker, has her uh, monthly podcast, The Cybersecurity Evangelist, and it's really just meant to be baseline education, right? What's happening in our environment today, you know, for the, for the individual, for the small you know, business owner and others, just to understand what this, this in increasingly connected world looks like, because it's a challenge for everybody, not just your mom, right, but everybody. Exactly. Everyone is, is equally at, at, at risk um, with that, certainly. And we still see, even with the sophisticated attacks, uh, like ransomware. Ransomware is getting just complex and it just keeps evolving. It is ugly and nasty and they're doing so much more with, with the basic technology around ransomware. But the way it gets in, I think this is still true. I don't have any um, current factoids on this, uh, but the, the most common way that they still get in is by phishing. Yeah. So if somebody had to click on that link or open that email or open that word doc or whatever it is and that that's how they get in and that's how they make their stand they start they find privilege escalation they find other places they can get to from that one network stronghold so it goes back to user education right we need our users to be smart and not click yeah yeah ever exactly. yeah <laughs> ever don't hit anything <laughs> but that's the point of entry right then it falls on you know, our smart networking folks to do all those other clever things in the background to minimize the impact of that initial potential failure, right? But, but you're right, it starts with the same basic things and that same simple mistake. And you're absolutely right. So you know, we're talking about some of these issues, we're talking about you know, how we work you know, with the Blended Threats workshops with others in our organizations and our communities to you know, share information and get smarter. But you know, really um, you do a lot of collaborative work, right? There are a lot of organizations working collaboratively in and outside of higher ed, right? So in addition to what you've already shared regarding blended threats and some of the things you do with your community and through the workshops. Can you explain some of the intra-higher ed security collaboration that happens and beyond higher ed? You also partner with government and other ISAC partners. Can you help us understand what that looks like a little bit? Who does, who does REN ISAC talk with, you know, within higher ed and outside of higher ed to help that information sharing ecosystem really function? So imagine a Venn diagram, right? I love to use Venn diagrams. I wish I could draw this out for you all. Um, and now imagine almost complete overlap of the circles because that's how it works. It's beautiful. <laughs> we are so sherry and not just for an ISAC, but I find 
you know, we came from a, a military roots. Cybersecurity, especially the U.S. government, came from military roots. And so there was a little bit of that secret squirrel, oh, we can't tell you because you don't have clearance. There, there was some of that. But um, we all know that the bad guys are sharing. The bad actors are sharing. They, they do it all the time. We see them take each other's, you know, they'll be like, oh, I like this piece of code. They'll take it, move it into their, into their malicious acting software. That was very well stated. Sorry, I'm talking too much here. Yeah, perfect, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we know they do that. So, so then we need to do it on the other side. And, and actually, um, you know, the law enforcement people I work with all the time, they, they share what they can. If there's an active investigation where there are victims, they can't share that. And sometimes if they're setting up some sort of a, you know, a, a dragnet or something, that sounds really cool and drama-ish dragnet. Um, they, they might not be able to, but for the most part, they're very sharing and they want us to all know. And so, uh, some of my friends in, in, in law, in law enforcement will say like, you need to, you guys need to watch out for, you know, X, Y, Z. And they don't give me any more information from that, but we can go and we can do something with that. Right. And it's usually from an investigation. Um, and that's, that's all they're, they're licensed to tell. So that's fine. And, and we take that. So Lots of, like I said, lots of different organizations. There are organizations within higher ed that we share with. Um, I'm going to name a few names because we have some some very close friends. Um, Educause is a, a higher ed IT um, professional development group, for lack of a better term. They're so much broader than that, but that's kind of sets the tone. And then Internet2 is a higher ed um, network provider um, for the future of the Internet. So, so they're both... Uh, constant partners with us. And, and we, we work with them quite a bit. They're, they're probably our, our closest companions. Sometimes I talk to them more than I talk to my own staff. Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that. But that's may how, at times probably, right? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure they do. They're like, oh, good. Keep, keep her busy. Keep her out of my hair. Um, so, so lots of overlap with them. And we don't care. I try not to get into the um, attribution game. I have, you know, obviously I have to, if I'm saying something that is contentious or saying, or providing something to someone, they're like, well, where'd you get that from? Then I'm absolutely, the RENISAC is happy to be a source for that. But if it's doing the right thing, I don't care who gets attribution for it. Let's just get it done. So we work with Educause and Internet too. We have private sharing partners that we work with um, who provide some feeds to us. Um, some of them are uh, are like private, I don't know what you call them, private cybersecurity research groups, um, like the, uh, you know, anti-fish anti working group, APWG. So that's one. So we work with them and we share with them and get information from them that, that benefits our members. And we have a lot of those, um, those folks that we get information from. And then we have a lot of just like casual check-ins. Hey, how's it going? And, and we get quite a bit of that from, from private corporations um, in, in technology or communications. And they're just checking in and they'll be like, what are you guys seeing? And uh, if I can tell them, if I have the time and there's nothing secret, which there rarely is, I can usually give them some TLP white version of what's going on in our, our field, then I'm happy to do that. And then, and then the National Council of ISACs and the other ISACs just amplifies that work, right? That we all amplify each other's works. So, so maybe 
um, a, a small university in New York State. There's a lot of small universities in New York State, so I like to pick on them. Um, maybe they're they don't know about us and they're not hearing about the, us and they haven't you know got anything from us, but maybe they have a, a contract in energy, and so they hear about things through the Energy ISAC. Actually, the 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 the, the more the more realistic scenario for this, the example for this is healthcare. Um, we have university healthcare centers and there's a health ISAC. And many of the, the of our members who are healthcare are also members of the health ISAC. And so they amplify that and they'll be like, hey, have you seen this or did you get this? And then we talk about it and they bring it into our community. And so they can help many other people by doing that as long as they're not sharing anything confidential or you know super weird <laughs> i i can't that's, even that's think of a technical term that we use right super <laughs> weird <laughs> no but i can't I mean, even that, i can't even think of an example i just ran out of words but but that's that's a great thing that the isac i think really does right it provides that anonymizing capability so you can have those conversations right so i don't have to necessarily implicate myself but i can share what's happening and then you can share it out with that broader community in so many different ways, right? It's just within higher ed and there's organizations you mentioned or cross-sectorally to other sectors, health or you know, whoever else might be implicated, anti-government partners. And that's a conversation that you know, members and others have with, with the ISAC team. And then you know, the ISAC plays that, that sharing partners. So it's just such a great way to do things. I, I just want to give credit to you know, the, the great community of, I call them superheroes. I really think they are. There are so many great you know, gals and guys out there who on their own time, in addition to all the work they're you know, doing in a given day, are seeing these issues and vulnerabilities and, and they're reaching out and sharing. I mean, just earlier today, a colleague reached out who'd seen something affecting a, a local government issue. And was just, he just wanted to be in contact with them so he could connect the dots and them frustrate what the adversary was trying to do. And so much of that occurs, right? So whether it's a, a deliberate sharing organization like you talked about, or some of other sharing communities, or just individuals that are out there that, that see something that's you know, leaking or, or, or compromised, and we get information out there, the ISAC is that trusted place where they can go and say, hey, look, I don't know what to do with this, but take it and share it and figure it out. And, and that's what your team does so well. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll shift gears a bit, Kim. I don't know if you've, you've heard about this, but turns out there's a pandemic going on in 2020. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's a little bit under the radar at this point, but so we, we, we were, I, I think you and I were talking about this the other day, we were, we were fortunate in an awful way to have done a workshop series just last year, looking at a health incident, not quite as severe, but an outbreak that started in Europe, fictitious, and then worked over the United States. And we went around the country with Ren Isaac and we, we had these discussions with, with your community on you know, a health threat and its implications to the, the campus and cybersecurity. I mean, just amazing conversations. And again, a lot of that's captured in the public accessible report, which Ren Isaac has online. And so our team has been encouraging organizations to really take advantage of this time to start capturing lessons learned and to start thinking about improvement planning now while everything is still very real and very fresh. And so I'll include a link to some of your reports and some of our posts on that as well. But for you and for Ren Isaac and for higher ed, are there any valuable lessons learned from this pandemic so far? And do you think you can draw any value from the workshops that we did, you know, in, as far as being able to respond more effectively to health incidents moving forward? Yeah, you know, I, I was just looking at the report not too long ago, just kind of doing that refresh that you talked about. And, and by the way, Andy recommends that you do an after action review during the pandemic, multiple after action reviews. It's yeah. not really an after action review, then it's a during action review. In progress, yeah, in, that's right, that's right. Yeah. 
periodic reviews. And yeah. uh, I, I absolutely think that that's the way to go because there's, this is so long, so long standing. And there's so many different learnings that we're going to miss unless you stop and take a minute to think about it. So I actually went through our pandemic um, uh, Linda Threat Workshop report from last year recently. And the, every time I do that, something new pops out. The thing that popped out to me is we talked about giving PPEs to students, a PPE kit to students. And we said, you could even sell it for $15 because, you know, students lose things. So, you know, you yeah. might not want to be out all that, but... Um, but there, you know, it, it was it was really interesting to see that. I'm like, oh, we use now we know what PPEs are. Like that might be be the first time I ever read it, frankly. Yeah. Before, <laughs> before this year. Yeah, that's absolutely um, right. People are thinking about it, right? I mean, I mean, this has been an issue. You know, the, the pandemic threat has been an issue that has been present for a long time. And, and to the credit of the uh, Bush administration, you know, they put a lot of emphasis on sort of, hey, we need to start really planning this before before we're in it and responding on the back end and. I'm not faulting or criticizing anybody from, from that administration onwards, but as a nation, we never really got there. And so even though this was something that we all sort of knew happened, might happen, that, that appreciation of the risk and the impact just wasn't there. And then all of a sudden, you know, 2020, right? And, and, and here we are now, you know, almost from, from one bookend to the other, and, and we just lived through this thing. So you're, you're absolutely right. There's so much to learn. There are terms that have become now commonly understood, and we can still capture and learn a lot of that sort of better next time because you know, God willing, you know, vaccines are, are finished soon and we can start getting that out to the population. We're through this, but we don't know if the next pandemic's, you know, a hundred years away or six months away. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no timeline on that, right? So we could be right back in a situation like this again, who knows when. And so if, if we if we rush back into that, you know, hey, things are normal again and don't learn what, what an unfortunate loss that would be. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, so that, that's our, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So I was just I, one other thing in in the uh, the workshops we we did you know it came up in almost all the workshops that uh, oh we would we would send the tech because we had a it was a limited contagion where the technology folks were were um, were really hit hard by it because they were all worked together and in the same building and everything so they all got sick and um, and so we said well we'd send them home and let them work from home and a couple of them did say we could send the students home too. Uh, so, so then what, you know, then, then fast forward to 2020 and um, it's clear we didn't have any university presidents at those, uh, at the workshops, <laughs> right? Because they just turned the switch. They said, you're going home. And, um, and so we didn't, you know, I think that, that we, we talked about it as a hypothetical about sending maybe classes home and sending your workers home. But, but on March 11th, they told me, don't come in until we tell you to come back. And they figured it out and we figured out, I mean, this is talk about a Herculean effort and these people being heroes. These people that flipped a switch and saved lives by getting people out the door of these extremely crowded campuses. I mean, across the, across the world really, but you know, I, I always tend to think about things with my, my university hat on. So, so, you know, how do you, how do you shut down a university with 40,000 students and 40,000 workers? Holy smokes, that ain't easy, you know? So, so really concentrating on that and seeing how we did that is pretty remarkable in spite of the fact that we did talk about it. We dabbled in it in our, our uh, theoretical last year, but, you know, this year it's just, it's so much bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And, and can, just for those that aren't aware, can, can you share, you guys are based out of 
where Renisec is housed at one of those big universities, which is? We're housed at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. That's right, which I am very partial to, not only because I'm a big Renisec fan, but my cousin, who defended her professional wrestling championship title last night, I should say, is a graduate from that university. And so I'm very much a big fan. I'm very proud of both, both Indiana and my cousin for their successes. So, so I appreciate Yay. that. But um, <laughs> so can we, we've covered a lot. We've hit a lot of things already. Um, but I know you've got your pulse you know, on the community. You talk to a lot of people. You look to for you know, your insights and, and, and the many things that you understand so well. Are there any emerging concerns for higher ed and critical infrastructure, maybe more broadly, that you're starting to think about? Like, are there things that are coming up? You're like, hey, that's something we've got to keep an eye on or anything along those lines? Uh, so I, I have two answers to that. Let's let's go with the threat, the threat-focused um, trend that, that's got me concerned. Um, ransomware. I mentioned it earlier. It's the way it morphs, the money that's going into its development from you know, uh, uh, advanced persistent threat actors and groups, um, they are just making it a bear. And so, so they use, they're, and, they're, and they're gluing technology together. So they're using, you know, bot making, bot attack technology into ransomware. And then they're making the ransomware polymorphic in its code. So it changes. So there's just no way of, of, of unencrypting that yourself. So you have you have two options as, as someone who might be open to a ransomware attack. You have two options: you pay the ransom, or you better have bad, really good backups and resiliency. So there's your word, Andy. Because right, this is resiliency month. So that's we'll right. That that's out way there. to throw that in there. Way to no, but you, you're right on, right? And you make the point of right. Either you've got to be able to bring it back up, or you make that payment. And I mean, just in the last few months, the, the U.S. government started to make that increasingly difficult, right? And the FBI has, has long said, don't pay the ransom. But now the government's trying to put some muscle behind that saying, hey, look, you, you can't pay the ransom because you could be doing these things. And um, in the workshops we're working on right now, actually we'll be sharing some references and ideas about that because it's, it's a really challenging thing to figure out, right? I mean, what, what's the threshold and the decision-making process You know, for those university presidents we talked about earlier, right? How do they make those decisions on, on what to do and, and what they're, how they're gonna respond? And are they ready to recover from, you know, from backups? And, it is a real challenge, right? A few years ago, you know, ransomware came up pretty, pretty heavily. And then sort of it was like, hey, that ransomware is done. And we're going to, we're looking at other threats, crypto mining, crypto jacking. And, and, and ransomware was, was not concerned about those, those sort of pivots. It, it came back roaring loudly. You know, the 2021 sort of forecast from all the security companies started to come out and everyone's, you know, acknowledging that ransomware is that enduring threat, right? Ransomware and business email compromise and those other things that are very much here today. And and not going away tomorrow. That's, that's a great point. Anything else outside maybe the cyber environment or, or staying within the cybersecurity environment that sort of has you just sort of concerned or is ransomware really the big one that's on your radar? As far as threats go, ransom, ransomware is the big one. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the increasing number of, of named hurricanes and, and our weird weather. Um, so definitely climate type issues are always gonna be of concern for me. Um, just because they're, they're so impactful, so immediate, so hard to guess. We're getting better at that. The work that like Noah's doing is fantastic for um, for forecasting or project. I would call it pro projecting more than forecasting. Um, but it's always there's so much guesswork there, right? So that's always going to be concerning. And so you know, 
you uh, you you keep the battle cry up. Are you are you prepared? Are you prepared? You know, have you, when was the last time you tested your plan? You know, so that so that just to kind of make it easy easier on people, um, uh, because anything that you can do as far as planning and preparation, if you have a book, you're in good shape and you can just follow the instructions. If you have a book and you've practiced it, so you're comfortable with all those st steps, you're in even better shape because you want that to be wrote. And we see this with cybersecurity incidents. We see it with physical incidents, both. You want that to be wrote. So you go, okay, check. And you just do it and you do the next thing and you do the next thing. And then um, person B takes over and they know that they're next in line, you know? So you just having that sort of exercise mentality is such a successful thing when that incident happens, when that that shocking breaking incident happens. So, so that's always one. Um, as far as other threats, uh, not not really. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm still recovering from. We had phishing, then we had all the credentials. So you know, those were, and now we've seen less of those and more of the ransomware. So. Uh, definitely, I'm all about the ransomware right now. Um, I look at IT usage trends too, because IT usage trends are going to impact what the attackers do. So we're all working from home. What does that mean? It means my data might look different. It means I might be saving things locally that I don't really need to, but you know, everyone loves to everyone loves to be a computer hugger, right? They want their I want my data here with me, so they're hugging, and um, and that's fine. Um, but it, it creates more vulnerabilities, more risks, more threats. Uh, not in my case, but in some cases, you might be sharing your computer with, with students who live in your household. Um, so, so all of a sudden, we have a more complex environment that we're, we're interacting with our technology with, in. And how do we account for that? How do we, uh, and we're all using the cloud, we've all moved to the cloud, so that's you know a whole other set of risks around technology usage. Um, how do I make sure that the information I'm saving in the cloud is secured? Can I run, uh, you know, we call it DLP, digital loss pre prevention. Can I run a DLP tool in the cloud to see if there's social security numbers or private student information in there? So, you know, looking at how we use the technology is different. Um, I, I don't have any, uh, this is gonna sound doom and gloomy. Um, I worry about email. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, still an issue, right? <laughs> we're all completely reliant on issue and we all hate email. And this is a bad combination. So it's not coincident that, uh, that instant messaging tools like Slack um, or Microsoft Teams, or even you know my texting on my phone, that I tend to use that maybe more than email now. And I'm old, and and you know I have strict rules. So if it's official, I use email. If it's just casual, I can use Slack. Um, but but new younger people, new younger people, you like that because they're not just younger, they're new and younger. Another great term we'll, we'll, we'll mint. Yeah. <laughs> new and improved, new and improved people. Um, they. They are not. They don't give a crap about what I think about email and that this formal thing needs to go by email. They don't care. They're going to send it the quickest way for them at that time, and and I'm fine with that. But I worry that we've got this heavy reliance on email, and what happens when people quit using it? When people quit checking their email? 
so I don't have I don't have an answer for that, but that's one of my technology trends things that keeps me thinking. No, I can appreciate that. I mean, you said a lot there that I can appreciate, but you know, like when I, when I see my kids, you know, phones and all, I'll see their email, you know, notifications, and it's like. 983, you know, I'm like, do you give it? Like, oh no, I check it. I check it. I'm like, well, obviously not. Right. But that's right. I mean, the, the, the move away to other platforms is that's just reality. Right. And, and that brings a whole new set of threats and risks and things need to be aware of. So yeah, there's a lot in that, but you, you were seeing a song that I loved earlier. We were talking about you know, the environmental hazards and the threats and just like the pandemic, the Atlantic hurricane season this year doesn't seem to want to end. And I don't think it's going to until the next one begins really. But um, you know, going back to that foundational piece, right? Having the plans, doing the training, conducting the exercises. I mean, that, that's so much of what we, we you know, sing that song and we, and we encourage people to do and we, we, we help with at Gay 15. That, that's what we love to do because it's just so critical. We're talking about ransomware, you're talking about those physical security incidents, you're talking about you know, how we respond to an incident you know, with our cloud storage. All that has to be figured out ahead of time to respond effectively. So you know, I love that just basic, you know, do your blocking and tackling and be ready, you know, type message. So that's awesome. Kim, we've covered, we've covered a lot, right? We've talked, we've talked about the new kids and everything else. We've talked about the, the pandemic. We've talked about the environmental threats and cybersecurity. There's a lot in there. Thank you so much for taking time to share about that. Was there anything we didn't get to that you want to talk about or any just sort of final words of wisdom that you want to throw out there before we wrap up? Uh, let, let me share some of the, a, a learning uh, one of my own personal learnings uh, during the pandemic, and there are many, this is just the one that, that I think about the most. I am, uh, I have high energy, as you can probably tell if you just listen to three minutes of this. Very high energy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm a go-getter, I'm always going, I'm always driving. Um, and this pandemic has been hard, and it's been hard for, on people emotionally. And so I've had to dial it back and think about the emotional and anxiety impact on people. And what does that mean to my job? What does that mean to our accomplishing things? What does it mean to you feeling good about yourself every day and participating at your fullest? So uh, so it's been a learning and maybe uh, I've been a little slower this year um, because of that, but it's totally worth it because it is about the human toll and it's about how we can help each other and help ourselves. So. Uh, that's, that's the one thing that I learned now, probably on January one, my staff is probably like, oh, great, here we go again. Cause I would be like, let's hit it. As a matter of fact, I think I sent him an email yesterday that said, uh, I, we have so much excited for next year. Let's hit it. You know? Um, so, so, you know, I, uh, but, but we'll, we'll do whatever we need to support our people. And by people, I mean, global people, um, to, to get through this together to learn from it and to keep being productive in whatever shape and form that is. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. You know, besides being married to a therapist, I think you know, we, I think we all feel the impacts of this environment. We talked about blended threats, but in reality, the pandemic is a very blended, blended life, right? We're managing work and home and all these things and limited space. And there's a lot of challenges to go along with that. And it's just being aware of that for ourselves and for those we work with. And that's, it's a great point, great sensitivity to be aware of. And I'm sure the staff is extremely excited to go get it in the new year and to pursue a lot of great things with you. But Kim, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking with you. I love getting to work with you. I'm so excited about the things that are coming up for us to do together. Again, I'll share a lot of the links in the, the blog post, but I think, um, I think we'll wrap there if that's okay. 
That's awesome. Thank you for your time, Andy. It's always fun. It's just like having a conversation with you, which I love. So we're, yeah, we're good I, to I go. I always get excited and I, I get geeked up ideas in my head. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for anybody who's listening today. This has been the Gate 15 interview, which is my monthly interview with fantastic guests like Kim Milford and the Ren Stack team. And really appreciate that. We try and look at the all hazards threat environment. So please check out our other Gate 15 podcast. I mentioned some of that earlier today. Jennifer Lynn Walker, Cybersecurity Evangelist. Dave Pounder's the risk. I'm sorry, Dave Pounder's Nerd Out Security Panel discussion, which was awesome last week, and our monthly risk roundtable with our Gate 15 team. So please listen and subscribe, and let us know any thoughts or feedback, and we'll we'll try and take that back into the next conversation. So Kim, thank you to those listening. We'll we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Bye.